Uh, we're in this series, we're talking about the incarnation, we're kind of using the different titles, if you will, of Jesus as we move through this to talk about uh, what it means for God to become flesh and be in the midst of us. And this morning we're going to talk about the, the Savior and our need for saving. Um, so there's a story that goes around, uh, a little boy, and uh, he's, he's writing his letter, you know, for his Christmas gifts, you know, dear Santa Claus, I've been a good boy this year, uh, here are the things I want, and he lists it all out and signs it, and, and then he looks over and he sees the nativity uh, set in his home, and thinks, you know, I probably should write Jesus too, you know, just kind of, you know, never hurts to make sure, right? Cover all your bases. And so he sits down and he starts to write, dear Jesus, I've been a good boy all year, and then he stops. And he's, uh, you know, Santa may be watching, but Jesus really does know everything that goes on. He says, yeah, there was... There was that thing with my sister. Yeah, okay. Uh, scratch that. Okay. Dear Jesus, I've been a good boy for six months. Oh, well, there was, there was that thing I did with the cat. So he's known. Dear, dear Jesus, I've been a good boy for six weeks. Oh, except what I did the dad's razor. Oh. Dear Jesus, I've been a good boy for six days, except for what happened at school. And so he just puts his pencil down in frustration, pulls the letter off, wads it up, and throws it around on the ground. And then he looks over at the nativity, and he sees it, and he gets an idea. Ah, I know what to do. So he reaches over, and he takes Mary out of the nativity, and he puts her in his pocket, and he starts to write again. Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again... <laughs> And about then, his mother comes in the room and taps him on the shoulder and says, Tommy, put Mary back in the nativity, right? There is something about the reality and the pervasiveness of our brokenness that sometimes expresses itself in ways that we laugh at and yet is uh, very real in the midst of all we are. And that's part of why we need a Savior. Let's pray. Almighty Father, we thank you for the sunshine that comes this morning, and as it pours out upon us, we ask the light of your presence to rest upon us. Uh, open us up to hear the word you would speak to us. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So that name Savior, if you uh, read scripture, it shows up in a number of places. Uh, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now this is Joseph, and Joseph has uh, found out recently that his, uh, his betrothed has become pregnant, and he has made the normal jump most of us would make to, well, she's been unfaithful to me, and uh, is unhappy about that, because, you know, the angel talked to Mary first, and hasn't spoken to Joseph yet, so as he's in a disturbed night, uh, an angel appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David... Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You hear echoes of that. Uh, in that region there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. You always have to remember, angels sometimes can be a little overpowering, overwhelming. Uh, but the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth, and lying in a manger. 
I mean, this, this title of Savior is given to Jesus even before he is born. This name is attached to him. And if you're not aware of it, the, his name actually speaks to that itself. Uh, Jesus, in, in the original language, is Yeshua. Uh, comes from Yahashua, uh, which means literally Yahweh saves or will save. God saves, he saves. But it's a, it's a, it's a title that means the proper name of God, Yahweh, God's proper name. God saves. Uh, and, and the name of Jesus appears 1,091 times in the New Testament. Now, the New Testament makes up about a fourth of your Bible by page count. Uh, so it's about a fourth of your Bible. And yet Jesus' name will appear in that one-fourth 1,091 times, which is several times more than anyone else's name appears in all of Scripture. Uh, so obviously this name is of importance, this idea that, that God saves is of importance and comes to us as a, a gift of, of salvation that's being spoken to us even in the name of Jesus. Remember that question? Do you ever get asked that? Have you been saved? Anybody ever had that question to ask? You know, any of you, any of you at home? That, yeah, you know, and, and, and maybe you weren't really sure how to answer that. Uh, I love one of our bishops was traveling one time and was on an air fly, airplane flight he was going to speak at an event. And so as he was flying, he was checking his Bible, his scripture uh, that he was going to preach off of. And the young man sitting next to him noticed he was reading his Bible and said, oh, I, I see you're reading your Bible. He says, have you been saved? And the bishop said, well, I, well, yes, I have. And the young man said, well, when were you saved? And the bishop said, well, I think it was about 2,000 years ago on a hill just outside of Jerusalem. So what does it mean to talk about saved? I mean, when you, when you go into Scripture and you start looking at this terminology, uh, save, uh, so-so, yasha, uh, it can also be translated, and it is sometimes translated, as deliver or rescue or help. It has more broad meanings than what we sometimes think of. Um, it sometimes is used to uh, apply to physical healing, to forgiveness, to rescue from enemies, to rescue from a natural disaster, uh, to deliverance from suffering, internal transformation upon confessing Christ, God's deliverance at the last day. Uh, it has this broad sense of, of God's love acting in ways for us, uh, sometimes in ways that are really directly kind of a rescue or help, and in other ways more uh, transformational in our lives. And uh, it can happen in, in different tenses. Uh, you know, it can be saved, saved, having been saved, being saved, will be saved. So it goes all the way from the past to the future. It's an all-encompassing kind of term for, for all of the ways in which God steps into our lives in powerful, powerful ways uh, and changes what's going on as individuals, uh, as churches, as communities, as nations. It's such an all-encompassing term because the reality of sin is so all-encompassing. When you come into Scripture and you hear that word sin, the Greek word that Paul likes is hamartia. Uh, it, it's, an, it's an old... Uh, archery term it means you, you miss the mark uh, and it implies kind of that your aim is not real good you know and you you miss the mark because your aim isn't that good uh, and and there's a wonderful line in one of our hymns I think that says it really well from uh, I think this has come now found uh, prone to wander Lord I feel it prone to leave the God I love isn't that a great description of, of who we are we're prone to wander 
You know, we know we're supposed to be aiming our lives at, at, at this, at, at having God centered in our lives, and yet we kind of wander off in different kind of places, and sometimes we get a little help in that wandering. Um, the story from Genesis when Adam and Eve are in the garden and have been told what they can and can't do, and, and the serpent, more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. Did God say that, really? Really, is that what God said? Kind of prone to wander and get pulled off and listen to other voices? I love when you read through Scripture uh, the names of the devil or Satan that are there uh, that have come out and gotten translated over the years and used in, in you know, common language. Uh, the devil, uh, Satan, Lucifer, Beelzebub, the adversary, father of lies, the ruler of this world, the tempter, and then from old England, old scratch. Now, I, I, if somebody knows the story behind that, you need to share it with me because I find that one particularly fascinating, old scratch. The others, I, I get the, the, uh, the places in Scripture where they come from, but this idea that somehow or another, uh, you know, this, this being or presence is opposed to God. And for some people, they experience that as very much of a kind of a personal reality. Other people experience it more as an impersonal kind of reality. Some people have talked about uh, devil, the devil as, you know, if, if God's light is shining in the world, all the places that it's, you know, somehow in shadow or are dark, that's, that's really what the devil is. I mean, there's all kinds of great explanations. But most of us at some point or, or another encounter the existential reality uh, of the devil and evil in our lives. Years ago, one of my ladies in uh, Lano made this comment. She said, whenever God is preparing to do something great, the adversary will rise in opposition. And so we were, uh, we were in the midst of a project we were working on out in Lano, and we had this meeting over a fairly minor issue, uh, and, and it just blew up. I mean, and you know, people got mad, and they stormed out of the room and stomped out and said they were leaving the church, and, and I was sitting there going, what, what the heck just happened? I mean, and Bobby Shepard said this to me. Now, at the time, I wasn't really sure exactly how that, what that meant or how I should understand that or what to do with it and, and all, but, but, but over the years, I've, I've kind of learned there's a reality to that, 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 you know, there is a reality that is opposed to what God is doing in the midst of the world. And whenever something amazing is getting ready to happen, and God's getting ready to do a great work, there is this opposition that will rise up, the adversary, the tempter, the devil, Satan, however you need to title that. And in our own lives, that can be a very personal reality that works against us. Prone to wander, we get pulled off course. And it can feel very, very real and personal in the midst of our lives and draw us off of what God is calling us to. Paul has a great description of it in Romans. Um, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. He's talking about his physical body. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law. 
that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Have you ever been there? You, you know what you should do, but you don't do it, or you know what you shouldn't do, and that's exactly what you do. You know, you wake up on Saturday morning and your head's just splitting. And so you go in the kitchen and get some water and some aspirin to try to alleviate that. And you do that, and, and then you look out the door and the, the car's not in the driveway. So you, you walk out to see, you know, the car's not in the driveway. And then you see the car, which is parked in the side yard in the grass over here. And you're like, boy, I don't remember doing that. And then you realize, you don't, you don't remember driving home. You don't remember what you were doing last night or who you were with when you were doing whatever it was. And you think, what a fool I am. I mean, how dangerous is that? How, how foolish is that? And you resolve that you're not going to do it again. And then Saturday morning, the next week comes by and you get up with a splitting headache. And you're going to the kitchen for water and aspirin and the car's not in the driveway. And the Saturday after that, and the Saturday after that, and the Saturday after that. Mm. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Or maybe you go to a family gathering and, you know, because it's your family, you know all the, the buttons you should not push and the things that you should not say. And then you get there and this is coming out of your mouth before you realize it. And you can't bring it back. Or you, you watch the news about our nation struggling with the reality of racism over and over and over and over. Wretched man that I am who will rescue me from this body of death. So when Bill wrote the 12 steps of uh, AA Alcoholics Anonymous, the first three steps go like this. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. So if you take alcohol out, you put the word sin in there. It's a pretty descript good description of the brokenness of sin in our lives. We admitted we were powerless over sin. Our lives have become unmanageable. Wretched man that I am who will rescue me from this body of death. We, we have to come to believe that there's a power greater than ourselves that could restore us to sanity. And that power we call God in Jesus Christ. And we make a decision to turn our will and our lives over. And that's what we call salvation. It's the basic model of what we come into. That's why when Paul writes this whole passage of this Romans that I read to you a minute ago, if you read the whole passage through and you go to the next verse, he ends it by saying, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So with my mind, I'm a slave to the law of God. With my flesh, I'm a slave to the law of sin. But what saves me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's understanding that, that only Jesus can save us. When we think about salvation, a lot of times we think about forgiveness. 
And that's appropriate because that runs all through Scripture, all the passages where Jesus pronounces forgiveness or is spoken of uh, as having the power to forgive. Uh, Jesus saw their face. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Uh, Then he said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Then Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven. And then further on, you know, all the prophets testify about him, Jesus, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. In Colossians, he's rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. John writes in his first letter, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a reality about the Savior bringing forgiveness that goes all through Scripture. But connected to that also is the reality that salvation is also about overcoming the power of sin in our lives. When John Wesley would write about this, he would talk about the the guilt of sin, but he would talk about the power of sin. And Paul knew that power so well and expressed it so well. And and in salvation, Jesus comes and and pours out forgiveness upon us, but he also pours out upon us the power to overcome sin in our lives and be restored to the people we're supposed to be aimed properly at where we're supposed to go. Jesus saves us from our sins, both in the guilt of them and in the power of them. Jesus saves us from despair in the midst of the world. Uh, Matthew, uh, in in Matthew's gospel, part of the the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but it's thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. We're, we're put here for a purpose. We're to be the salt in the midst of the world. We're to be the light in the midst of the world. We're to be the one through whom God's amazing works are seen, so that we give glory to God and others see in that the power of God at work. We have a purpose. We're not just here accidentally. Uh, Peter reminds us that, you know, we're not anonymous, you know, just here for no reason, but rather that we're God's people. You know, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're called into this nation. We're called into this righteousness. We're called to be God's people on the face of the earth, to represent God to the world. And not only are we called and and given a purpose, but that purpose extends even those times in life when, when things are difficult and when things are hard. Therefore, since we're justified by faith, we, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And that's wonderful, but then Paul goes on and says, and not only that, we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. We're 
We're here for a reason. God's put us here for a reason. We're here for a purpose. We're part of God's holy people. God has claimed us. God has sent us here for a reason. And even the things that we suffer through, the difficult times we suffer through, have meaning and purpose. Even years like 2020, when we were going through all of this stuff with the pandemic, God can bring out of that meaning and purpose. God saves us from despair. God saves us from throwing our hands up in the air and saying, ugh, nothing matters. And reminds us that God has put us here for a reason and that even our difficult times have meaning and purpose. God saves us in love. He acts in love for us. Uh, This isn't done out of some other motivation, but rather this is the motivation, God's love for us. For God so loved the world, and that means each and every one of us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. There's a reason it's called the good news. Jesus comes not to pronounce condemnation, to pronounce and bring salvation. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us and that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. And some translations say while we still were enemies, Christ died for us. God's love is so powerful that he reaches out to us no matter what the situation is. That's how powerful the love is. Even if we are opposed to God, his love still reaches out to us to make us right with God. And Paul goes on to remind us that not death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing can come between you and God. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. And in his first letter, John reminds us that we are called to love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. God acts in love to pour out forgiveness. God acts in love to give us power over sin. God acts in love to bring meaning to our lives. God acts in love to claim us as one of his own. Two of the hymns that we'll sing oftentimes around this time of the year are uh, written by the poet Christina Rossetti. And, and both of them have that, that theme of love woven into them. One is love came down at Christmas. And the, the first line is love came down at Christmas, love all lovely, love divine. Uh, and the other is in the bleak midwinter, which ends with this line, you know, where you know, she's wondering what she can give him for this great act of love. And she writes, yet what I can, I give him, give my heart. God acts in love. And finally, in love, God gives us the gift of life. God gives us the gift of life. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He speaks to the disciples, I will not leave you orphaned. 
I'm coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Then in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the transformation that takes place uh, from the mortal body to the immortal body. This perishable body must put on imperishability. This mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, which echoes something, that passage he wrote earlier in Romans. And finally in Revelation, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Remember, I'm the first. In the beginning was the word. Uh, And the last and the living one. I was dead, and see, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. I mean, there's this giving of life from the one who was in the beginning and is in the end and who has triumphed over death. And this is salvation, is to have a Savior who comes into the midst of the world where, where we're always prone to wander and get pulled off. And where sometimes it feels like our lives are totally unmanageable. And in love, He comes in the midst of our world and He pours out forgiveness. He pours out power over sin. He gives meaning and purpose. He fills us with the power of His love. A love that is so powerful that even death can't interrupt it. And he brings us the gift of life. She will bear a son. And you are to name him Jesus, Yeshua. For he will save his people from their sins. Let us pray. Mighty God, we offer up to you the reality of our lives that so often sin has made unmanageable, sometimes in small ways, sometimes in great ways. The struggle that we face as individuals, the struggle we face as community, the struggle we face as nation, we come knowing that only you can make sense of it. Only you can bring forgiveness. Only you can bring the power to overcome Only you can give meaning and definition to our lives. Only the power of your love can save us from the wandering and bring us back on target. And only the power of your love can give us life eternal. So, Father, this morning we come to you and we offer up to you our lives and our wills and all that we are. And we ask that you throw your arms open to welcome us and pour out the gift of your salvation upon us. We ask in the name of Jesus, whose name means he saves. Amen.